and welcome back to another episode of Spark Your Fire. I'm your host, David Shea, and along with me is always Mr. John Camino. How are you doing, John? I'm good. Uh, I'm good, David. How are you doing? Good to see the smiling face on Fridays, as always. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, it's happy. Happy days, good weather. Uh, it's Friday, so, um, you know, I mean, we're, we're both uh, seven days a week workers, you know. Friday, uh, Saturday's a busy day. I've uh, got to get out there and hit the pavement, but um, Absolutely. yeah, life's good. I can already see you're wearing like shirt t-shirts already. So, you know, the spring is on the way. But it's, it's but, slimming. Uh, yeah, it's it's actually, it's unusually warm this year, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm still gearing up, mate, just to keep my <laughs> winter outfit as always. <laughs> so, But uh, look, uh, good to see you. And, um, you know, I think um, there was a slight rejoice in terms of the August rate decision earlier this month, uh, which RBA decided to be on the pause. Um, and this happens to be the second last meeting that uh, our current governor, Philip Lowe, is going to be in. Um, September 1 being his last one before our new RBA governor, Michelle Bullock, currently the deputy art governor, is going to kick in. Um, so it'll be interesting. But uh, look, the the detailed minutes hasn't been released yet. But as far as I can, the information or the intel that I can collect so far, um, they want to buy more time to see what's really happening in the economy side of things. Um, certainly the CPI numbers, the quarterly CPI numbers have all shown, came back, um, exceeded expectations in terms of more under control in that sense. So that's good news for everyone. And uh, certainly the pause this month was mainly welcomed, pretty much all welcomed by all the mortgage holders across Australia. But uh, yeah, so it's a good outcome, I think personally. And um what do you think, John? Do you still think that there's going to be another one coming at this point? Or yeah, I, look, I've always thought Governor Lowe might throw throw a grenade on his way out. Um, you know, then like block his ears as he chucks the grenade <laughs> in the doorway. Uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I still think that. Uh, he's only got what two? Did you say two more meetings? No, the uh, next month will be the one last more month. meeting. Right, right. So if they're going to do it, it'll be the next meeting. Yeah. But but probably not. So. Uh, you mentioned uh, CPI. CPI is coming in cooler than expected. Uh, the US, and the US is relevant because they have the reserve currency, but the US came out with its inflation numbers last night uh, and they were 3.2% and they were lower than expected. The market expected 3.3%. Awesome. So there's so th- there are expectations that inflation is cooling. And as we said in the in in the the pre-match analysis, this is they're going to be within range very very soon. So once it gets under three percent, they're going to start to get close to their range. Mm. So there, there probably isn't a case for for another rate increase. But I, I'm, I don't want to assume they're not going to do it. Just one last thing. Uh, I saw a chart today that, uh, again in the US, but it, Australia's monetary system rhymes. Uh, there have there has been deflation as in a contraction of the M2 money supply uh, for nine months in a row. That's technically the technical definition of deflation. So oh. this is the first time this has happened since the Great Depression, where oh. you've had nine months of of a contracting money money supply. So we should start to see that come in through negative CPI in the next year or so. Uh, you know, when the money supply shrinks, you, you get falling prices. So we haven't seen it in the in the CPI yet because the CPI lags, but. M2 money supply is con- contracting. We haven't seen that since the 1930s. Mm. And uh, th- there are lots of reasons for the uh, RBA and the Fed to pause. 
before dropping rates because we we might be staring down you know the the path of deflation this time next year but i mean again crystal ball it's hard to know no need to do another rate rise i would have i would have thought and i think we might be begging for inflation this time next year according to uh, grant cardone but who knows Interesting about how quickly the um, these numbers are, are yeah. moving, right? Um, and look, anecdotally as well, um, you know, the economy is definitely slowing. There's the, the retail numbers are coming in very, very weak at the yes. moment. The coffee shops are probably the first one that gets impacted uh, in terms of you know the people are coming in just for coffees and not buying meals, as you can imagine. Um, yeah. So and um, also, unfortunately, you know, I'm starting to hear my clients, at least a few of mine, has started to uh, be made redundant as well um, in the industry, which is unfortunate fact for everyone. And it is difficult time for for people. I think it's going to start to reflect on their unemployment numbers. I know it's still record low right now, but Mm. um, RBA, I think, has also adjusted their forecast on that uh, moving forward. Um, anticipating probably around the four point, about the four point zero by the end of this year, and then maybe around the four point three towards mid to late next year as well. So, unemployment number is going to track up uh, in that instance, um, and um, and I think that's going to be the key determining factor next in terms of when RBA will decide to reduce rates. So. I think the general consensus, though, is that that they're not going to drop rates very, very quickly, are they? They're going to hold it for a while. They're going to see how things pan out. They're going to make sure that inflation is killed to the point where it might even go to deflation before they would actually make their next move. What do you think, John? Yes, I don't think they'll do anything this year, even if we start to see some... Some, some, you know, quote deflation. I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the CPI as a, as a measure, but if we start to see it come right down, I, I still don't think that they'll lower rates this year. That yep. said, it's, it's all August, so there's not much of this year left. Uh, that's true. So, so that's not necessarily a, a problem. Yeah, I think they'll hold it for a bit. I, I think that, I think that 2019 was a lesson for the, the central banks. The, if, if we go back to, uh, to 2019, there was a bit of a rattle in the stock market and they started lowering rates. Now, they might have, I mean, a sinister person might have to say that maybe they knew something COVID-ish was coming down the, the pike, but but Trump was putting pressure on uh, Chairman Powell at the time to lower rates for political purposes, right? So uh, I think that they won't make that mistake again. There was no reason to drop rates in 2019. And so I think that um, if there's a bit of a shake in the stock market, and bearing in mind the stock market's been on a tear for the last nine months. Uh, this year, the, the stock market, particularly tech, has been on a tear. I think if, if that starts to wobble, I think they will hold their nerve for a bit. Mm. Uh, and I think that they won't do what they did in 2019. Well, hopefully they learn the lesson this time. I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's all we can <laughs> Don't count on it. But... <laughs> um, but look, you got to trust these central bankers know what they're doing. Um, so We'll see. We'll see. Okay. Um, good. All right. So, uh, but at least that's a good outcome for the mortgage holders, yes. holders this month. And uh, hopefully it'll remain the same. And um, the only trajectory hopefully is is down on the cash rate from this perspective to make yeah. everyone a bit happier and the mortgage holders a bit happier. Mm. So, um, But I guess on another news, we've, you know, we've got the July uh, core logic data coming out as well. Um, pretty much uh, everything has slowed, even though they are still growing. So the figures are still positive. Um, we're talking about, you know, the index as at 31st of July, we're still looking at, um, you know, Sydney still record a 0.9% increase. That has dropped from a one point something. But then again, it's 
has slowed, but it's still a positive growth. Uh, Brisbane and Adelaide both being 1.4% are the accelerators um, in, in last month. So these two cities are kind of like the outliers, um, you know, followed by Perth at 1%. Um, and Hobart and Darwin, uh, Hobart zero percent, Darwin at 0.3, and Canberra a negative, minus 0.1 actually. So yeah. <laughs> Canberra's coming back uh, at the moment. So yeah, I think overall the summary from from Tim Lawless really is the growth is still uh, the the pace of the growth has slowed um, essentially in the last couple of months, um, and that's to do with both prices as well as the rental increases uh essentially so the rent increases is also has started to show uh a, a bit of slowed uh in in that in that sense um the supply however which is what we've been monitoring for a while you know because we all know that the high level of prices or how it's being maintained at the moment is because of the shortage of the supply that's available the supply or the new supply in July has actually gone up so it has actually increased defiant from usually the winter quiet season. I wonder whether it's to do with the early spring that we're seeing this year, but uh, you know that might be a coincidence because of the fact that uh, some landlords have decided to, to start selling due to the fact that the fixed rate cliff is also rolling off. So um, yeah, uh, but the flow of new listing added to the capital city housing market has increased by about 3.9% in July. So that's about 4%, uh, which is a um, big jump. I actually think big jump in that instance. So as we spoke, as we touched on about uh, two weeks ago, you know, the um, there was a clear trend in terms of investors started to sell. Uh, you know, if you could recall that graph, we, we spent about 10 minutes discussing, interpolating that graph to show, the, you know, the Sydney investors or Sydney landlords is uh, consisting almost about 40% of the total selling listing now. So I think those are probably what's really fueling the new listings at the moment mm. um, to a degree as well. So, um, um, but yeah, look, uh, I think the key, the key words here is really prices, supply and rent um, as well. And I think John, you've got, uh, you've got a bit of interesting insights there to share about, uh, about these factors. Um, what, are, what are your highlights um, actually out of last month's um, core logic data? Uh, well, I think that the, the market is still still going up, um, but it, it is starting to flatten out. I mean, the market's going up at 6% a quarter or thereabouts. I mean, that, and, I, and I've got a bit of a Sydney focus, but the market's going up at 6% uh, per month. You can sort of look at some of the smaller capitals as six to seven months behind Sydney. So I don't expect the momentum in, uh, in Brisbane, say, to slow down. I, I suspect that they're going to be uh, uh, speeding up. One of the interesting things, though, if just add a little bit of value to this uh, this chat, is what what's interesting is the the different uh, tiers. So the upper, middle, and lower quartiles of the market. So in in Australia, let's say Brisbane and Melbourne, it's the lower quartile yep. that's uh, going. Uh, it's actually been the most stable over the last couple of years. The lower quartile, so the the entry level uh, suburbs have been stable, but they are rising the fastest. In Australia, except Sydney, in Sydney, it's the upper quartile, it's the premium areas that are rising the fastest at the moment. So that's very, very interesting. Um, one of the things that that when we look at the, the the different tiers is that in Sydney in particular, the upper quartile has been quite volatile. So the upper quartile got uh, got hit the hardest in 2021. Sorry, 2022 when the um, market crashed. But actually, the upper quartile 
ran the hardest in 2021 when the market was hot. Right now, the market is is sort of hot again, really, and the upper quartile is, is going the hardest in Sydney, but actually, actually it's the inverse everywhere else. Mm. Uh, so that that's that's uh, quite interesting. But apart from that, you know, the, the the market there is some evidence the market is starting to plateau, but it's still rising. And so, you know, if we say, you know, I'm very cautious to to say that it's flattening out because it's it's flattening out with a with a bias to to increase. So if we're going from two and a half percent a month to three quarters of a percent, that's still fairly good uh, capital appreciation. I mean, the market's yep. been up about twelve percent in the first six months of the year. Yep. I mean, I'd be quite happy with less than that for the full year. So it's it's been a it's been a very significant increase in in prices. One last thing: we're nearly at, back at the all time high. We're nearly at twenty twenty one levels. You know, the the market peaked out in the previous kind of bull market at the end of 2021. And we're only 1% below where we were a year ago, which is to say we're sort of back at those levels. Interesting. Properties doing what property does. But the one the one difference is that we are at the same levels as we were 12 months ago, give or take, a little bit lower. But rents are about 20% higher. Mm. So the market has readjusted the the real estate equation of whether it's worth buying. So rents are twenty percent higher, but the prices are the same. So this is the Warren Buffett weighing machine that he that he talks about. So yeah. that's interesting too. Yeah, now it's a good point that you made about the uh, the, the upper and the lower quartiles. I think the uh, certainly the logical explanation of that is uh, there's a lot more wealthier people in Sydney that can play that game in the upper quartile. Mm. Um, you know, and uh, whereas for the other cities, the lower quartile are the affordable corridors, which are generally speaking at the moment due to most people being being hit with the borrowing capacity dropping by about 30 40% so that's all they can afford and that's the market or that's the quartile that they have to compete in in that sense so therefore yeah. pushing that up so those markets are those quartiles are probably performing most steadily um in that case and um and and hence the explanation in in, in that um yeah to that regard but um yeah and um yeah funny you say that we're almost at 2022 highs as well like 2021 yeah. like it's not it's not that long ago when uh, when when everyone thought that um, you know with interest rate increasing so sharply that there's going to be a correlation in terms of the property prices. That didn't last for long, did it? Um, basically, mm-hmm. it came down a little bit, but then it bounced up, bounced up again very very strongly. Yeah. Although the very, I mean, I think this this proves to be a um, you know, that property is always demand and supply driven at the end of the day. Like even though you know we're seeing such a phenomenon at the moment with such high interest rates from historical level, historical level, probably on the medium, on the average type yeah. level. But given how much debt that most people have taken on, this is now classified as the new highs um, in that sense. But the um, but the property prices hasn't really reduced much at all. In fact, yeah. as you said, we are pretty much at the peak or very close to the previous peak at the moment. So, and that's mainly driven by not many supply lots of demand with a lot of immigrations coming in. They all need places to live. Um, they all need either to rent or to buy. A lot of them is probably skipping renting at the moment, given how difficult it is. They go yeah. straight to buying, which then, you know, increases that demand again. But supply, mm. there hasn't been any any materialistic increase in supply at all. Um, so Oh, that's right. Yeah. And there are more houses, more citizens. We're a bigger country and we've got less supply, so price has to adjust. Mm. Um, you know, the, the interest rate 
argument is very interesting. I hear, you know, like interest rates can't be the only reason why property prices go up and down. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you know, if interest rates that say that 6%, if you draw, and, and, you know, if you see a chart of interest rates over time since, you know, the year 1800, let's say, and you draw a straight line where we are now, say 6%, there would have been um, 20 times that interest rates were 6% in the past, over the past couple of hundred years, but all at different prices. Yep. The most, What's more important than the interest rate is the amount of currency in the system. The uh, I mentioned M2 before. So it's yes. the currency supply, the availability of credit is what determines the price of everything in the economy, including, including property prices. So yep. we have a, a constant inflationary bias where the RBA is constantly putting new currency units into the system. That's fine. That's totally fine. But- as if the amount of currency units increases faster than the production of goods and services, or if it increases faster than the population is growing, and the population is growing at a little less than a percent. So wherever they're creating more Australian dollars than there are people, you're going to get inflation. Yes. And, and that's and that's why the interest rate doesn't really matter. Mm. It's the currency supply. Mm. Mm. There you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Debunking another one of those... Uh... <laughs> One of those uh, myths that's out there, yep, I guess. Cows. Yeah, that's it. But it's also interesting because I guess, you know, we, we spoke about, we touched on this before we jump on the podcast as well. You know, the um, we're already seeing a, a, a property prices that's beyond belief to a, to a degree, like unaffordable in most people's opinions and eyes. Yeah. Uh, but based on the 18-year rule, we are still going to be sitting, seeing another shoot up until 2026. Now, obviously, that's it's all purely hypothetical. We don't know mm. when it will happen, but you know, looking, we can only so we can only do so much looking in the past and try to predict the future. Yeah, but if that 18 year rule does materialize, that means we're going to see how much another another what percentage jump until 2026 again, based on based on where we stand. Do you know roughly would that be another? Yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to rationalize the why the market would be going up when yeah. serviceability is lower and all these sorts of things. Um, so to some degree, we're still paying the piper for the COVID lockdown. So during COVID, they increased currency supply by 25% in one year. So that, that had never happened. That that was quite irresponsible. And that re- led to this overall inflation. Real estate's no different. Mm. Um but but you're right. That there's there's there are these th- theoretical models that deter, you know that that lay out these predictive models around underlying you know the eighteen year cycle, eighteen point five year cycle. Uh, we're on track for increased property prices until twenty twenty six, according to that model. Now you don't want to put too much stock in a in a model like that, but it, it seems to be playing out. Mm-hmm. Um, and and. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm actually a, a loose believer in those in the 18 year cycle. So I, I'm quite comfortable. I remember when the property market was sort of correcting around 27, uh, 2017 to 2019. I remember saying, "Oh, yeah, this is this is the two year mid cycle correction. We're we're, we're going to be good. We're going to be good." And then in 2019, it took off again. So yeah, it's hard to, it's hard, hard to know. Don't put too much stock in it because you still need to live somewhere. But um, I can. I can see it going higher. The one thing I'd say about that is that if the if the eighteen year cycle is right, and if we're going higher until twenty twenty six, what it does mean is that 
the the last two years of this cycle, let's say 25 and, uh, 2025 and 2026 or 2024 to 2026, the last two years are what they call the winner's curse. And the winner's curse is when property prices go ballistic, but mm. then they crash after that. So uh, we could see, so the, the model, if property prices were, were to go ballistic from 2024 onwards, which is what the 18-year cycle would be suggesting, yep. it means that they're probably going to start to lower interest rates next year. Yeah, okay. Mm. Yeah, that would be in line with, because that, yeah, that yeah. would essentially be lining the fire underneath the, the property barbecue. Yeah, that's right. So, so that's right. So you might have a recession in the economy, but you might also have a property shortage, a population explosion, and and you, you might be seeing sort of the housing market uh, g- going up as the rest of the economy is in the doldrums. I mean, that's mm-hmm. entirely possible. Um, and and recessions don't need to be deflationary. Recessions quite often, and you ask anyone in Zimbabwe and or, or Argentina, recessions can quite often be inflationary. So that that could be quite uh, possibly what's going to happen over the next couple of years. We enter some sort of inflationary recession. Yeah, interesting. Okay, all right. We'll see. We'll see how that plays out. (laughs) But yeah, it is it is difficult to fathom, I guess, in terms of how. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But um, yeah, we'll see. History always uh, repeats itself to a degree, and there's always a trend. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, look, I think that pretty much covers all the data perspectives or data points that we want to talk about but um i know you mentioned there's a very interesting topic that's floating around at the moment um on property chat in particular is it what is worthwhile keeping or it's what is worthwhile being a landlord at the moment given how how all these rules that's being implied to you know whether that's rental increases to how many how many times a year um rent freezes, uh, that kind of things and restrictions here and there. And, you know, we all see that uh, a lot of times the the government doesn't necessarily support, I say loosely, support property investors to a degree. Yep. Um, and that could be, you know, charging extra land tax and that kind of things as we're seeing in Victoria. Is it currently worthwhile to be a landlord or becoming a new landlord or that owns a property mm. as opposed to investing into an ETF? So yeah. I think that was an interesting discussion point that's worth putting on now. Before we start this, uh, obviously, you know, I think our listeners will understand that we are very pro-property. So um, <laughs> um, so sometimes we may have, we may be making comments that's got a bit of a lens there, but, you know, we I think both John and I agree that we will try to put our Put that put that property hat <laughs> off a little bit, um, and then um, and then see where we can try to make this as an yeah. discussion as we possibly can. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I can't promise I'll be objective. I'm definitely a property guy. So, uh, listeners, you know, I, I I jokingly say, you know, if people ask me if it's the right time to buy a property, it's like asking the barber if you need a haircut. So, asking a mortgage broker and a buyer's agent uh, whether they prefer real estate to other assets is, is sort of like that. So. Please do your own homework and, and take your own view on these things. And these are just opinions. We'll, um, try, we'll try to take off those hats and just be talking as <laughs> investors or more of an investor. Yeah. But yeah. So, do you want to go first, David? Do you want to give sure. okay. you know, ETFs so look, I mean, or even uh, shares versus versus? Yeah. Risk? Yeah. Look, I, I'm I'm not a big share guy. Uh, at the end of the day, I think, you know, it's obviously we, we talk about, we create this property podcast, talk a lot about properties, but there are certain times where there's a lot of headwinds um, in, in, in in the investing game. And I think at the moment, property is one of those that's currently experiencing quite a number of headwinds for especially new entrants. 
um, into the game. So, you know, with a lot of um, when when people talk about like a few years ago, there was a lot of cash flow property being really the the buzzword. Cash flow properties, you know, you want to buy cash flow properties so that way, you know, it can actually generate passive income for you. Um, you know, it's easier to hold that kind of stuff. In today's interest rate environment, it's literally impossible. Like even if you're talking about a six to seven percent type of rental yield, you're going to be paying like you know two hundred, three hundred dollars or something. So, holding costs have started to 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 line up. Not to mention, as a market broker myself, I'm seeing borrowing capacity across the board has dropped about thirty to forty percent, depending on yeah. where you are at the moment. So, all these headwinds are currently basically saying that it's a very difficult time to be investing in property, and that's why a lot of people don't do it. Um, in in that sense. Um, and coupling that with all that negativity news that's coming from, you know, uh, the Victorian government increasing land taxes for property investors, um, they've tried to hold a, they try to push, uh, they try to basically um, limit the rental increases up to, I think, once every two years. That's what they're trying to do at the moment as well. Um, so yeah, I guess the the moral of the story is there. There is currently a lot of headwinds against property investors um is it worth it is it worth it mm. look my 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 perception is you try to do something contrarian to other people to a degree like if you keep following the herd then you're just going to be another one of those within the population it is difficult but it doesn't mean that it can't be done um at the end of the day right i think if you and and look i think this comes back to again um you got to look at property as a long-term game. There's going to be, it, it's a it's a difficult time to be entering, but the capital gains um, in the property, in the residential property in particular, is basically what you're aiming for. And we've seen in the past, in, in the history, that the property, uh, the, the appreciation, the capital growth over the 20 years or more in terms of the compounding growth is exceptional, which I don't know. I haven't got the data in front of me how ETF would compare to that. Um, but that's definitely the main reason why I would be looking at property at the moment is for that longer term uh, capital growth appreciation. Short term, there will be a lot of headwinds. There'll be a lot of negativity. So it's difficult, but it's doable. Um, now, ETF, I have a bit of shares myself. Uh, I don't play in the ETF space, but ETF, in my personal opinion, is great for cash flow perspective. Uh, you know, dividends and all that kind of stuff. It gives you a lot more stability. ETF slash LICs, uh, leaks in that instance, gives you a lot more stability in terms of your money return. So that's probably more of a shorter, short to medium term type of play rather than a long term play. This, my my personal my personal opinion is. When I made some money from property, I'm and when I when I want to exit the game, I think it will be a great idea to put money into ETFs and LICs to get that guaranteed uh, return when mm. I need that passive income to come through. So, I think it's important to distinguish the fact that property is not great from a cash flow perspective. Property is great from a capital growth perspective. Um, so it's very so you know cash flow wise is very very poor. Whereas the ETFs is ETFs LICs are much better from a return from a cash flow perspective. So it depends on what you're wanting to chase uh, in that instance. Mm. So, um, and um, 
obviously with ETFs, you don't get the you don't get the landlord you don't get the landlord issues. You know, you're not going to get calls in the middle of the night to say the bath <laughs> your toilet's broken down or hot water <laughs> system's not working. You're not going to get calls from property manager telling you that something's broken down, the roof needs replacement, yeah, yeah. it's going to cost you another five digits, all that kind of hassle. So, you know, I, I, I think in that sense, I agree. Is it, is it a good time to, to invest in ETS rather than property? Yes and no. I think it depends on really what you're, where you're at. If you're at the retirement stage, makes sense. But if you're at the initial accumulation stage and you're looking to accumulate capital growth, Yes, property is not the easiest, but I would still say do it. Mm. That's my stance. Uh, fantastic, and so much to so much to talk about. Um, I, I want to, uh, yeah. Um, so I want to start with one of the things you said before about the capital growth, and one of the things that, that makes real estate magical is is that because you've got leverage in the mix, and you don't really have leverage in an ETF or shares. I mean, you can get their margin products, but you generally there's it's generally not a leveraged product. Um, very mediocre returns in real estate can still be magic. It can still be amazing. You know, you can still drive your wealth, even if you're. Uh, so comparing nominal growth to real estate to nominal growth in the share market isn't really fair to real estate because in real estate there's there's a lot of leverage and so it actually magnifies what may be small nominal gains into big life-changing uh, amounts of wealth. And you're right that real estate is an excellent way uh, to to it's it's more about generation of wealth rather than generation of cash flow. Yes, and you may have at different priorities and different stages of life. But it's good to know that it's really not a cash flow game, at least not initially. It, it can be later on. Right. But it's a it's a very good way of generating and storing wealth. All right. So here's my formal uh, opinion on this. So um, firstly, and I'm sort of, by the way, the property chat, propertychat.com.au is an excellent place to see resource for real estate. So big shout out to the guys who run that. Um I don't know if real estate was ever meant to be easy. It was always a little bit of a complicated, difficult asset, right? So you, you needed you needed to get into the market. You needed to negotiate with your bank that you're worthy of lent, being lent to, uh, and it's it's an asset you control. So you do need to call the plumber out in the last minute. The hot water system is going to break down, and you're going to need a new oven. So. Um, don't be surprised that real estate's difficult. If it wasn't difficult, everyone would do it. Um, so, so yes, so there's that. Second thing is real estate is a bit of a political uh, hot potato. Mm -hmm. So this week we heard that the, the Greens want to sort of put caps on rent increases and there's always been discussions about those sorts of things. Now, no one cares what, let's say, BHP does with its prices, but real estate is different. So real estate is absolutely essential asset because it, it it doubles as accommodation or maybe it, it's accommodation that doubles as an investment uh the other way around but um yeah it's so it's a little bit it's a little bit political it's a, it's a lot more sensitive than other assets so there's always going to be involvement from non-economic actors in in the real estate game um so ultimately i think the question is the trade-off between etfs which have ease and liquidity Yep. So you can have access to your cash and you don't need to manage anything, but you're giving to buy real estate. You're sorry to, to the alternative to, to those things is real estate where you have control 
So you can renovate it. You, you don't need to share it with anyone. You can make income out of it and leverage. So it magnifies the gains. Now, my personal view is that I want the control and I want the leverage. Um, and I think it's very telling that banks want to lend to you for real estate, but they don't want to lend to you for ETFs. That that, that should tell you a lot. Um, but ultimately for me, really, I think Winston Churchill said something like, uh, and I think, Teddy Roosevelt said the same thing, which is basically that real estate is the foundation of all wealth. And that's that's something that's so important. So everything, real estate is pure wealth. And there are products out there that maybe derive their value from real estate, but real estate is the course, the essential wealth at the end of the pyramid. So I want to own real wealth. Um, ETFs are a, a proxy, a digital tokenized proxy for wealth shares are a fractionalized representation of a company but real estate is the real wealth and so for me and again it's no surprise because i'm completely biased but for me real estate makes sense i would generally speaking not like to sell real estate to buy an etf again selling real wealth to buy um, a fractionalized representation of wealth but i get i get the liquidity bit so and I do own some ETFs as well. So, but uh, but real estate is um, where it's at for me. Yeah, yeah so pros and cons of each, really, at the end of the mm. day, right? So, yeah, like I said, I think it really comes down to where you are at the moment. What you're looking to do? You're looking for cash flow? Are you looking for capital growth? Um, what's your financial circumstance going to be in the next five to ten years? Um, all that kind of things plays a factor uh, in terms of you know property or ETF or whichever type of investment strategy that you yeah. that you want to do. Um, which is all, yeah, no, John, very, very valid points. I think I, I do agree with you. And, and I like I like the fact that you pointed out property is is actually all about be able to control the asset to a degree. You know, you yeah. you hold on to, you have the ability to be able to decide what you want to do to the property um, to a certain degree, of course, with, within council approval, that kind of stuff, you want to do bigger than yeah. that. Um, but you got the option to be able to renovate, you got to be able to, um, you know, sell if you want to mm. as well, depending on when you want to exit the game. That's the part that we like it. And of course, as a landlord, you decide when you want to increase the yeah. rent, assuming that the government doesn't intervene anymore. Yeah. Sense, right? So, um, but as soon as the asset loses, start to lose some of these, which I know that's that was the reason why we started to come on property chat is there's a lot of talks about the government restrictions in terms of even just the ability to be able yeah. to increase the rent whenever the landlords want, right? That's what mm -hmm. sparked doubts around are we started to lose that ability to be able to control the asset the way that we wanted to. So I think yes, that's right. That's comes, right. Yeah, that's the that's the question that comes. That's right. That's right. Because they're not going to put a cap on uh, the price of hot water systems, and they're not going to put a cap on the price of ovens. They're going to put a cap on the price of rent. So it's completely it's it's madness. Actually, it's it's insane. Um, inflation is is something that comes from the central bank, often through bud funding budget deficits. But when M two increases, when the budget the, the supply of currency increases. Um, Landlords, private enterprise respond to the inflation by putting the, the price up. But it means that higher prices are the response to inflation, but higher prices in and of itself is not inflation. It's response a response to inflation. So the inflation is when they when they print money and then landlords have to respond to that by putting prices up. So yeah. yeah. So they have to leave it alone. But um, but 
And if they don't want higher rents, they need to stop printing money. That that's how you solve that problem. I uh, wonder when I wonder whether they will stop printing money anymore. No, of course that's not. Line, right? That's the that's a fundamental inflationary system that we currently live in at the moment. So yeah, it's, a, it's a tax. It's a tax, and uh, that's why they they won't stop. That's why buying real estate or or any inflation hedge makes sense because you don't want to uh, you don't want to assume that for some reason the system is going to change and that inflation is going away. Yeah. Prices are going to are going to go up because that's baked into the the banking system so. Yeah. Wise words. I think we'll wrap it up there. <laughs> um, but it sounds a bit so uh awesome. All right. Well, um thank you listeners for joining us again another week and um yeah, as always, you know, this is basically just two property guys giving it a rant. So uh, <laughs> before you make uh before you make any decision, make sure you run past your accountants, brokers, uh, tax advisor, whoever, uh, financial advisors, to uh, to to make sure that the um, uh, the decision you make is appropriate for you. All right. Well, um, so until next week, we will see you guys again in another episode of Spark Your Fire. Cheers, John and David.